Well, again, <clears throat> excuse me, it is a privilege to come together to God's Word. Join me in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, continuing our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer for his people. John 17, where Jesus, only a few hours away from his own death, moments from the greatest temptation he will face to be diverted from his cross, Jesus shows his care and his love for us by bringing us our names before his Father's throne of grace, interceding for our spiritual well-being. And this is a unique chapter, as we have seen over these last few months, a unique chapter because this chapter gives us insight, access into the inter-Trinitarian Holy of Holies, where Christ communes directly with his Father, while also giving us a picture of what our Lord's daily intercession looks like for us, a unique chapter in all the scriptures. And we are picking up our study in verses 20 through 23, 17, 20 through 23, which is Jesus's prayer for unity. His prayer for unity we need to hear, especially in the highly individualistic culture in which we live. Individualism, not only being a characteristic of our fallen world, but individualism and isolationism and spiritual independence being far too common in our churches as well. Let's read the prayer starting in verse 20 where Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Just stop there for a moment. Here's the transition Christ has been praying specifically for his apostles. Those prayers have application for us. But now Christ prays specifically for us. Continue the verse, for those also who believe in me through their word. And what is the first request now, the first request for us that Jesus offers? It is this, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You can stop there. If you've been with us over the last few weeks in this series, you know that this is the third specific request for others that Jesus offers. And it is a request that is not haphazard as we will see. This is a request that seals a request that seals the first two prayers Jesus has just prayed to his father. You remember request number one. That was in verses 11 through 15. Request number one, Jesus prayed for the eternal protection of our faith. The eternal protection of our faith. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them, protect them in your name by your power. 
Drop down to verse 15, Jesus adds, keep them, same word, shield them, defend them from the evil one, from Satan himself, the one who wants to destroy our faith. Protect them, shield them. This is Jesus' prayer for the eternal security of his people. That our faith will not utterly fail under the pressure of this hostile world. That Satan will reclaim none of his former children. And as we saw last week, it was a prayer Jesus needed to begin with because of the second request Jesus asks on our behalf in verses 15 through 19. From his prayer for spiritual protection from this hostile world, Jesus then prays that we would be sent into this hostile world to proclaim his gospel. That's request number two. Jesus prays for our evangelistic mission in this world. He prays for our evangelistic mission in this world. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Dedicate them, consecrate them. Consecrate my people to your truth, your gospel, Father. Dedicate them to the message of salvation through me, who is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because of verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So here's our mission from our Savior. Just as he was sent from heaven to earth by the Father, so too we have been sent into the world by the Son. That's our commission. And the primary goal of this sending is to carry on Christ's gospel work, the proclamation of the truth, to testify of his cross, to call men and women to repentance and faith, to shatter Satan's chains that hold sinners captive and rescue sinners from Satan's domain of darkness. It's through, verse 17, through the proclamation of the truth, the only truth that saves. This is why Christ prayed for the Father, look back at verse 15, for the Father to not take us out of the world. Why? It'd be easier why? Because the world does not need hermit Christians. The world does not need silent Christians or fearful Christians. No, the world needs testifying Christians. Since it is only through our testimony of Christ that the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we saw that back in chapter 15 and 16. So that was request number two. Jesus prays for our evangelistic mission into this world. Which brings us then to this third request. Third request, and it's related to the first two. And this is a request that both seals our eternal security while also equips us for our evangelistic witness. It's found in verses 20 through 23, request number three. 
Request number three, Jesus prays for our unity. He prays for our unity with the Trinity first, and then he prays for our unity with one another. We'll see how interlocked those are. Both are essential to the Christian life, our unity with the Trinity and our unity with each other. Let's begin with Jesus's prayer for our unity with the Trinity. Notice verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one. That they may all be one. Who all those who have believed the apostles' testimony, those who have believed the truth. This is a prayer for all of us if we've come to Christ in saving faith. Christ says for all of us to be united together, to be one, watch now, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So Jesus now is getting theological. He's getting theological. And he's referring to this eternal fellowship that existed between himself, the eternal son, and his eternal father. It's a fellowship so close and so unbreakable and so essential that Jesus talks about it in terms of indwelling. Again, verse 21, the father in me, indwelling me, Jesus says, and I, the son, indwelling you, indwelling the father. It's an image meant to show how inseparable the father and son are. It also showing the distinctiveness between the father and the son. The father is not the son, but the father is in the son. And the son is not the father, but the son is in the father. They're distinct, and yet they're united in the most interconnected and complete of ways. Now, we've heard this language before. Back in chapter 14, Jesus said this, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And in that context, Jesus was explaining why when his apostles saw the Son, how he could say they saw the Father. That's how connected they are. When they heard the Son, they heard the Father. Why? Because the Father and Son, though distinct, they are connected. They share a mutual communion, a shared fellowship. There's an eternal intimacy. So much so that they surround the other and hold the other and indwell the other so that Jesus can say back in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, distinct persons but they cannot be separated. Here's your theological term for the day. Use this at lunch today. It's a $60,000 word, perichoresis, perichoresis. You'll impress everybody if you use that. It means to go around, to go around. It's the idea of interlocking. This is why pictures used to describe this inter-Trinitarian relationship have interlocking triangles or interlocking circles. These depict the unbreakable nature of the Trinitarian union. You cannot separate one of the circles without separating all of the circles. 
So that's the image. That's the image that Jesus has in mind here. That's the theology that Jesus is referring to in this prayer. But notice, Jesus is not offering here a theological lecture that is meant to stay within the ivory towers of academia. No, this is being theological because this is highly applicational. The interlocking relationship among the members of the Trinity applies to us in this prayer. Finish verse 21. You, Father, are in me, and I in you. That's the image. And then what does Jesus say? That they, his people, us, all who believe in him, that they also may be where? In us. So Christ is praying now that we would be brought into this mutual and eternal indwelling, perichoresis, unbreakable, interconnected relationship between the Father and the Son. That's staggering. So grasp the prayer. Jesus is praying that at the moment of our salvation, just as the Father surrounds the Son, Jesus prays that the Father would surround us. And just as the Son indwells the Father, Jesus prays for the Son to indwell us so that we will be as interlocked within the Trinity as interlocked within the Trinity as each member of the Trinity is interlocked within themselves. So that's staggering. It's profound. One commentator says this unity is beyond human comprehension. That is true. Right? How can we grasp this fully? Now this is not the first time Jesus has made this indwelling Trinitarian promise. This was Jesus' promise back in chapter 14. Why do we need not let our heart be troubled? You remember that chapter. <clears throat> Why do we not need to be troubled? Because, here's one of the reasons, because we, referring to the Father and the Son, we will come to him, the believer, and we will make our abode, our home, our dwelling in him. We will indwell him. The Father and the Son will indwell us. And so that promise then now becomes a prayer in chapter 17. Look at verse 23, 1723. Jesus repeats this for emphasis. I in them and you in me. We are as interlocked within the Trinity as the Trinity is interlocked within themselves. Now here's the question, how? How does this happen how does the Son draw us in this mutual, eternal, inseparable relationship? Because the last time I looked, we're created beings. Created beings. We are far from the eternal nature as the Father and the Son, as you can get. So how is this union possible? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 22. 
It is because of the glory which you have given me, I have given them. And I take glory here, at least in part, as a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Son brings us into an unbreakable Trinitarian fellowship when he sends his Spirit to indwell us. So finish that verse. He gives us this glorious Spirit, verse 22, so that we may be one, one with the Father, one with the Son, just as Christ and his Father are one. Turn back to John 14. John 14, Jesus is building on a promise. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, Jesus says. I will go before the Father in prayer. And what will the Father do? He will give you another helper. He will give you my spirit. And he will be what? In you forever. Forever. So the spirit will be in us. The same spirit who is in Christ and Christ is in the Father, which means we're surrounded by Christ who is surrounded by the Father. So we're surrounded by the Father. So that promise then becomes a prayer in chapter 17. And it's a prayer that's answered. Acts chapter two. Jesus makes this prayer in John 17, Acts chapter two. The spirit comes, unites us together in Christ. It's a prayer that becomes a praise in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he sealed us. How does he seal us? How does he unite us in Christ? It's through, by the Holy Spirit. So the indwelling, sealing, interlocking work of the Spirit is what eternally unites us to the Father and to the Son. And though this is a spiritual union, it's an invisible unity, invisible, that we cannot fully grasp how this can take place. Jesus wants us to draw application from this principle. The application is this. Because we are united to the Father and the Son by the indwelling work of the glorious Spirit, because of that union, we can never and we will never be separated from the Trinity. Our union to the Godhead is secure forever as long as the Spirit indwells us. And that is the application. Look back at verse 11. It's the application, the connection Jesus makes. Verse 11. Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Seal them. Defend them. How does this happen? Here's how. By answering Jesus' prayer that they may be one, that they may be united together to us in us. By your spirit, interlock them to you and me even as we, our Father, make their union with us be like our union together. That's the prayer in verse 11. That's the connection. 
So this is how the Father keeps us by his power. This is how the Father keeps us from the evil one. It's an answer to his son's prayer. It's by the Father giving us the Spirit so that we are eternally interlocked to himself and his Son. This is Jesus' prayer for our unity with the Trinity. It is what seals, it's what seals his prayer for the preservation of our faith. And this is the application we find throughout the scriptures. It's based on Jesus' prayer. Listen to Romans 8. Same language, same image. Paul writes, if Christ is in you, that's John 17. If Christ is in you, interlocking us. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, same language. If all of that is true, if the father has answered Jesus's prayer and united us to himself and to his son through the spirit, Paul asks this, verse 31. What then shall we say? If God is for us, if each member of the Trinity surrounds us and indwells us and interlocks us, if that is true, who can possibly be against us? No one. Who can thwart God's saving work in us? Who can thwart that? No one could ever shatter his eternal bond with us? Again, it's a rhetorical question. And thus, here's the application. Verse 38, I am convinced. That's applicational language. Be convinced. Be sure of this. I am convinced that nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God. There is no one who is able or powerful enough to break that interlocking, interlocking bond we share with each member of the Trinity. This is why in Colossians, Paul says there's a mystery. It's a mystery of our salvation. The mystery is Christ in us, sealing us and dwelling us, Christ in us. And then he says, that is the hope that is the confidence of our glory, cannot be shattered. Thus Jesus seals that first request for our eternal security with this prayer for Trinitarian unity. But notice, that is not the only unity Jesus prays for. He not only prays for our invisible, interlocking unity with God, but now Jesus prays for our visible and loving unity with one another. And you're saying to yourself, Pastor, let's just end here and come back next week. (laughs) This is connected to the second prayer that Jesus has offered. Just as Jesus' prayer for our unity within the Trinity seals his first request, Jesus' prayer here for our unity, our fellowship, that is what equips us. That is what equips us 
to carry out our evangelistic mission he just prayed for in his second request. So notice the transition here. Verse 21. Invisible unity that they may be in us. Invisible unity. To now a visible unity amongst his people a unity so visible, so undeniable, verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. The world sees unity. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, invisible, spiritual, perfect union with the Godhead, now a unity that must be perfected, completed in us that they may be perfected, progressively grow in unity. Again, why? So that the world may know, so that they will see, so that the hardened heart of this hostile world will come to saving faith. This is evangelistic. And believe that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So let's put the prayer this way. Just as the world does not need silent Christians, it's what we saw last week. Just as the world does not need silent Christians, the world does not need solitary or isolated Christians. What the world needs are believers who humbly pursue a togetherness amongst one another. That's what the world needs. We need it for sure. It's also what the world needs. Believers who rather than turning on each other, love and forgive each other. Believers who find their bond together, not based upon any temporal connection we might share not based upon our age, not based upon our hobbies, our political affiliations, our economic means. Right, that's the unity you find at the Moose Club, right? That's not the church. No, we find our unity together based upon the unity we share with the Godhead. Why? Because according to Jesus in this prayer, according to Jesus in this prayer, this visible unity, based upon that bond with the Trinity, that visible unity is the greatest apologetic weapon we can wield. It is what we must bring to this hostile world. That's verse 21. We are to pursue a unity of love together so that, purpose statement, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It's verse 23. We pursue this unity of forgiveness and mercy and grace. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Mark Dever is right. Our Christ-like love for one another is intended by God to be the church's most powerful tool of evangelism. 
Let's just ask ourselves, what is our most powerful tool of evangelism here at EBC? Come up with a variety of things. Well, according to the prayer, it should be our love for one another, our unity. The mutually loving relationships in the church are designed by God to be attractive to an unbelieving culture. The covenantal, careful, corporate, cross-cultural, cross-generational love that is to characterize the church and glorify God is at the same time intended to evangelize the world. You know the passage that Jesus is referring to here. It's John 13, 35. He gave the apostles a command. The command is this, a new commandment I give you that you what? Love one another. That you perfect your unity. That you grow in your togetherness. That that invisible unity you find within the Godhead goes public. That our love for one another is like the love he has for us, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Be united in love. That's the command. Why? Verse 35. Because by this loving, visible unity, all men, this hostile world, will know that you are my disciples. If, circle the if, if you have a love for one another. The application is as profound as we just looked at with the interlocking relationship we have with the Trinity. When unbelievers are able to see our love for one another through thick or thin, when they're able to see a bond based solely on our union within the Godhead, we become something unique in this world. We become something that has no worldly counterpart, no worldly explanation. We become a community of people from every walk of life with a diversity of skin colors, falling into different age brackets, standing on different social rungs, having different backgrounds, different IQs, different occupations. And yet what holds us together are none of those things. What holds us together is that the Father loves us. That's the bond we share holds us together is that the Father has sent his Son to die for us. He's loved us to draw us into this eternally loving relationship with him. And when we love one another in that way, finish verse 23, that is when the world will know that the Father sent Christ and that the Father loves us even as he has loved Christ. Those last phrases are so powerful. They're convicting. 
In John 13, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. So the model of our love for one another is Christ sacrificing love for us. That's John 13. But here in Jesus's prayer, the model of our love for one another is the Father's love for us. So we model Christ sacrificing love for us. Now we model the Father's love for us. See that verse 23, so that the world may know that the Father sends Christ and loves us. But then he continues and he says, the Father's love for us is compared to the Father's love for the Son. You loved them even as you have loved me. That's our model. No greater love could be described. And that is the loving unity we pursue with each other. Again, why we need it. We'll look at that in a few weeks. We need that unity. But we also pursue it because that is the greatest apologetic weapon we can wield is what gives teeth to our testimony. It's what gives a platform for our witness. Loving unity amongst the brethren, loving unity is the one thing, the one thing that will cause this hostile world to pause in its hatred towards Christ. It's the one thing that will cause the world to give an ear to our gospel. I hope you can understand why so many passages throughout the New Testament warn against factions and backbiting and divisions within the body. Let me read one commentator. He says, a group of Christians who are so knit together in the love of God that others can say of them, look how they love each other, is a church where the gospel will be the power of God for salvation. I love this next statement. Evangelism is a community act. It is the proclamation of the church's relationships as well as its convictions. The preacher is only the spokesperson of the community. The gospel proclaimed from the pulpit is either confirmed and hence immeasurably enhanced or it is contradicted and hence immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships in the pews. In this sense, every Christian is a witness. Every time we gather together, we either strengthen or weaken the evangelistic appeal of our church by the quality of our relationships with our fellow church members. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to this prayer, is not what the world does. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, 
self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every form of lovelessness. These are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism which render the gospel fruitless and send countless thousands into eternity without a savior. So Jesus prays, Father, as I send my people into this hostile world with my gospel, Jesus prays, do not let them be satisfied with their love for one another. No, perfect that love. Grow it. Deepen it. Strengthen, and again, verse 21, so that it goes public so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's the prayer. This is equipping us to fulfill that second request of our evangelistic mission. So let's get applicational then. There's four questions we need to ask here. Two are general, two are specific. You'll love the general ones, not so keen on the specific ones. First question is this, question number one. If the father answered Jesus's prayer for spiritual unity, which he did, he answered that prayer, he sent the spirit. So if the father answered Jesus's prayer for spiritual unity, then why, why would we ever let superficial, preferential, fleeting, temporal differences sever any bond we might have with one another? Why would we do that? Oh, we can be so preoccupied with ourselves, can't we be? Question number two. If the visible bond of love between Christ's people, if that visible bond is God's means of bringing his gospel to this fallen world, if it is our greatest apologetic, then why? Why would we ever undercut God's gospel plan by biting and devouring one another, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5? Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever exalt our own preferences to be of greater importance than the glory of God's saving grace? And oh, how temporal we can be. How temporal. Those are general questions. Let's get more specific. Here's question number three. Specifically, how are you? How are you perfecting, growing, and deepening your unity with one another? So Jesus prayed for it, yes, but what are you doing about it? I could just be speaking for myself, but I have found that loving others is pretty hard to do. I don't just wake up in the morning and think, I'm gonna just love everyone. So we need to ask ourselves and be specific, how am I perfecting this unity amongst God's people? Are you actively praying for one another by name? 
Are you holding on to bitterness or are you seeking forgiveness with someone who may have wronged you? Are you squelching gossip about others as soon as you hear it? Or are you giving an audience to it? Are you associating only with those who are like you? Right, same age, you share the same likes. It's people who look like you, who think like you. Or are you expanding those friendships? Those friendships here at the church and reaching out in love based upon not temporal similarities, but based upon the union we share with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, the question, how are you perfecting the unity Jesus has prayed for for this church? Question number four. How are you making this loving unity go public? How are you making this loving unity go public? How are you making your love for one another visible to the unbelievers in this valley. Can't be on Sunday morning. For the most part, that's not where the unbelievers are here at church. So how do we make it go public? Again, back to the prayer, Christ has not sent us into this world with his gospel alone. He sends us together. And I understand this is a shameless plug. I'll be up front. This is a shameless plug for our home discipleship groups. That is true. But that is why those groups exist. Those groups come together not to close the curtains and, be and bemoan where the world is heading. It's easy to do, isn't it? And then you come back the following week, you do it all over again, and you complain that nothing has changed. Nothing in the world has changed. Well, maybe that's because your neighborhood, your coworkers have not seen your love for one another. Our home discipleship groups are designed to bring God's truth to our unbelieving community together, to use our love as a platform for a gospel testimony. Again, look at verse 23, 1723. The goal is that so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so again, the question, how are you making your love for one another visible to this unbelieving valley? This is Jesus's third request he offers on behalf of his people. He seals our eternal security, uniting us with the Godhead. And then he equips us with our love for one another. He equips us to bring his gospel to this world. Father, we thank you that we have a savior who prays for us. And no doubt in our own wisdom, and our own selfish desires, we want Jesus to pray for us in other ways. Oh, but he has your glory in mind. He has what is important in mind here. 
So I pray that you would change our priorities. Our priorities would reflect Jesus's prayers for us. That you would deepen our love for each other. That you would cause us to repent and turn from, re- from any preferential preferences that we have. Selfish preferences. That we'd see the importance of your gospel going throughout this valley to the glory of your name. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.